You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. My phenomenal colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. Judith Twig with us today. And we want to talk about a range of things. But Judy, first, we have to ask you, because you are teaching and you are a college professor, is it fair to claim that colleges and universities are now the new super spreaders? I mean, estimates add that there's 3,200 cases per day, and they account for 88,000 cases since the pandemic began in America as of mid-September. And this is just coming from our colleges and universities. It's hard to avoid when you look at the data coming to the conclusion that, you know, look at the county level data, look at where universities are located in counties. As students have returned over the last month, the number of cases in those counties by and large has gone up. What's surprising is that we're not yet seeing spread of the virus on a systematic basis into the surrounding communities around these places where colleges and universities are located. And I think there we can, you know, possibly we can just say that it's too soon to see it, that pretty soon we'll start to see some increase in the cases among, you know, the people in their 30s, 40s, 50s in these in these communities. But I think two things have also happened. One is that local health departments have been on the ball here in these college towns and, and they've taken the kinds of measures that 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 they've needed to in order to keep a check on the spread into surrounding communities. And then the colleges have done their best to put the kind of isolation measures in place that can, to to the extent that's possible, create a bubble around their institutions. And obviously the feasibility of a bubble depends on what kind of institution you're talking about, where the college or university is located. But Right. I mean, I was going to say like all colleges and universities aren't created equal. My, my oldest son for instance, is a football player at the University of Rochester. And Rochester is about 6,000 undergrad. It's in upstate New York, of course. It's attached to the University of Rochester Hospital is is one of the top hospitals in the country. It's certainly the top hospital in upstate New York. And they have five cases. That's it. And there's not a lot of COVID in that part of New York. And the students there are taking it very seriously. The administration is taking it very seriously, and they don't have a problem. Contrast that with what we're hearing out of, say, Madison, Wisconsin, and some of the other big state universities that don't have the luxury of having five, 6,000 students. It's a, it's, a, it's a much different case altogether. May I just add one thing? This is Steve Morrison. Judy, thanks so much for joining us today. What you said earlier about how universities across the country, when you look at the high growth rates in it's August, September, something like 19 out of 22 of the top growing counties are places with universities or colleges, which kind of show that the entry in spurred this. It's also spurred conflict with the local authorities, local public health authorities. I mean, in Madison, Wisconsin, they had 1,400 cases late August into early September. It was a big shock, and they were concentrated in the two big freshman dormitories with these big blocks with you know 1,200 students in each block and then 22 dormitories and sororities. So they had this thing get out of control really fast, and they froze, stopped for two weeks, stopped all in-person education, instruction, put people into lockdown for two weeks. And the head of Dane County, Parisi, very powerful figure, just took the university to task 
for why did you do this? Why did you not send people back? Why were we not consulted? Because there was this sense that it was not going to be contained. Now, that's a university with 42,000 students on it, and they have this burst of 1,400, and they have a huge population that lives off campus throughout the community. Yeah, the the political factor here is enormous. Just thinking about the political pressure that's coming from governors in some states for universities to open to in-person instruction. So you look at, for example, Georgia, North Carolina, you know, places where the governors put incredible pressure on universities to resume in-person classes. You know, we saw University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, then have to go back to online instruction basically to close within a week. You see University of Georgia still open, even after thousands of cases have been reported among the student body, and there's been significant spread into the surrounding communities, causing just the kind of tension with those communities that that you observed in in Madison. And yet there's pressure from the state level to uh, to keep doing what they're doing. Do you think that the university college sector will remain a super spreader just simply as people struggle to keep operational and sustain some form of functionality of universities and colleges just because of how much virus there is in our population and how congregational this is? Controls will be improved, but nonetheless, we're going to continue to have outbreaks in in those communities. You're talking about 18 to 22-year-olds. And so I think that a certain level of spread is is inevitable. I think there's highly variable resources and willingness and capacity among different institutions across the country and different kinds of institutions to to make the best of this situation. So, you know, the success factors, obviously testing, you know, coverage and frequency of testing. And there are some institutions that have invested quite a bit more in that than others, and some that have been much more successful than others. A couple of examples, look at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, which you know, had hand in hand a strategy of resuming in-person instruction, but then in-university development of a quick, inexpensive saliva test given twice a week to every student. I mean, really an extraordinary level of expense and commitment that they went to for this. But then a few students kept going to parties, even though they tested positive. There we are back to the, hey, these are 18 to 22 year olds factor. And so they had to lock down for two weeks uh, in order to get a handle on what was happening. But that two week lockdown stabilized things and they're, they're back to business now, you know, m- making their way through. So there's an example of extraordinary commitment and investment, crisis control, and now picking things back up again following the crisis. Look at University of Arizona and their innovation in wastewater testing. You know, that, that's been extraordinary. They're screening the sewage from each dormitory. And the last week in August, that worked. In one dormitory, they found two asymptomatic cases, caught them before they'd spread, did intensive contact tracing, quarantined those students, and, and got that under control. So we, we do have, I think, some impressive examples of what can be done to keep this whole higher education enterprise rolling if you're willing to invest the, the time and the commitment, and, and also the leadership. That's another factor that we should talk about. The, the, the leadership that brings everybody to the table in making the kinds of sacrifices and suffering the inconvenience that you need to make to keep things moving. Well, let's talk about that. What do you mean by that kind of leadership? I mean, one question we want to ask is, from the federal level, did the CDC drop the ball on not providing clear guidance and compelling guidance to colleges and universities much less the rest of the United States with COVID. 
So the the short and easy answer to that is yes. And obviously there are quite a few issues surrounding the CDC these days and, and the kinds of political pressures that it's been under. But we've already observed that there are so many different types of higher education institutions, so many different contexts that those institutions operate in, that I think most universities have gone to their state health departments. And they've been working very much with the authorities at the local level to come up with guidance and procedures. And I know I'm sitting here in Richmond, Virginia, at Virginia Commonwealth University, you know, a big university with a big medical campus, lots of clinical services, 30,000 undergraduates. Uh, We've worked very closely with the Virginia governor's office and the Virginia health department to work out what our procedures will be. And now your governor has COVID. Yes, that came as quite a surprise. Yeah, one of his his in-house personal staff at at the governor's mansion tested positive last week. And knock on wood, it sounds like Governor Northam and his wife are both going to be fine. They're mild cases, but they're, they're in isolation right now. Judy, that's an interesting point you make that universities that have depth in public health and in science and are in states that have good competencies in those areas can partner together and do very innovative things. We've seen that with the Broad Institute in New England, which has now struck testing deals with uh, 115, 116 colleges of all descriptions and sizes. And then and they're making use of all of their genetic engineering capacities and, you know, the, the depth of scientific R&D accomplishments the Broad Institute represents. And they converted those into innovative testing and are having a, an amazing impact. And that gets me to one question around, and that's not the only case. You've, you've referenced Urbana-Champaign in Illinois. There's a lot of experimentation and innovation going on in colleges and universities and testing. Are they the frontier? Are they the front edge of showing the rest of America what can be done and getting back to work or getting back into your schools or getting back into your churches? It certainly looks that way. I mean, this is a very large population of people in, you know, young people, uh, young people prone to exhibit risky behaviors in physically concentrated locations. So this this is in some ways an ideal set of laboratories for, for these kinds of new processes new innovations to be developed. What's been most impressive to you in terms of those innovators, those who've been able to get low-cost, reliable, fast testing in place for high-volume universities? I mean, if you're doing Colby College, that's one thing. If you're doing a small, isolated university with fewer than 2,000 students and staff, and you're testing them twice a day, that's one thing. Chapel Hill's another thing with fraternities and sororities and you know, thousands and thousands of people and a whole big community surrounding the university. Steve's right. I mean, this is just two totally different things. And I think we've already mentioned a couple of examples of innovative processes. I think it's important to not to focus just on the innovations in testing, but also what you do with the data once you have performed the tests. And here's where we get into that leadership dimension that I mentioned earlier. It's important, I think, for university administration, university leadership, where it's appropriate to partner with leadership of the communities where these universities are located to make the point that we are all in this together and that there are gonna have to be systematic and sustained behavior changes adopted by large and diverse communities in order to keep this educational enterprise rolling. So I I think about VCU's example. You look at the VCU web portal for its COVID situation, and it's called VCU Responsible Together. 
And the slogan is, we're all in this together. And, and it's been quite impressive the way they've made data transparent. There's a, there's a university COVID dashboard. They've been very effective at communicating the data, communicating the processes and procedures through a variety of different vehicles to, uh, to university and community personnel. As is the case in any large institution, there have been a whole lot of rumors about what may or may not be going on inside VCU. I know our chapter of the American Association of University Professors is very active in asking questions about our testing coverage, about whether or not some of our students and our staff are going off campus for testing so that it's not getting captured in the university reporting system. And so two weeks ago, the university started a rumor mill webpage where they just overtly started posting what some of this gossip and scuttlebutt was uh, right there online for everybody to see and, and gave what seemed to be some fairly direct, straightforward answers about, about what's going on. So I think that kind of straightforward clarity helps to bring everybody together into the enterprise and, and keep it moving forward. Are there any other university college leaders who've been real standouts across the country, in your view, on this sort of vision that you laid out? Oh, that's that's not something that I'm familiar with. I'd kick that question back to you. Now, Andrew, what's been your experience with a child in college? Well, you know, like I said, my son, I, I feel really good about where my son's in school. I also feel really good about my alma mater, Tulane University, that's, you know, in New Orleans, in a, in a city that's known for its revelry, in a school that has you know, a lot of spirit to it. It has sports and it not only does it have sports, but it just has a kind of a joie de vie on campus. And, you know, they, they've handled it really, really well down there um, through a variety of testing and contact tracing. And, and really, I, I think discipline on the part of uh, faculty and students, a combination of outdoor learning, a combination of, you know, online learning. I mean, th- one of the things I wanted to ask you about too is, is do you think that, what, what do you think the value of learning in person in classrooms versus the hybrid models that we're seeing now or the Zoom models that we're seeing now? W- what's the lasting impact of that going to be? So this is something that, you know, I and other university faculty are dealing with every day. And what we're seeing now is a whole lot of data collection made possible by the experience that we're in right now that helps us to continue and accelerate a discussion that started quite a few years ago about the value of online learning, about the value of you know MOOCs, these massive online courses, about the meaning of higher education in a situation where you can engage thousands and thousands of people in front of a screen watching the most talented instructors deliver the most engaging courses through an online format. And so we've been asking ourselves these questions for a while about what that means for higher education. You know, are, are we moving toward uh, some kind of elite versus mass model of higher education where the wealthy elite can continue to afford, you know, the 20 person seminar in-person model of instruction and everybody else is going to go to 50,000 people taking the same, you know, intro to calculus MOOC at the same time. You know, we're still early in this process, but what very clearly I'm learning as an instructor and what I'm learning through my conversations with my colleagues here at VCU and, and at universities around the country is the extent to which our students value and benefit from interaction with their instructors. And the way we define interaction 
is changing in, in ways that we're just feeling our way through now. But I'm finding it remarkably effective in ways that I had never imagined to sit here in front of the Zoom screen with 15 or 20 students' heads in boxes in front of me. The story that I'm hearing from students, you know, cut, cut several ways. There are some students who are clearly disadvantaged through all of this. They're not comfortable with their home environments. Um, you know, some of them are taking classes in their cars because they're parked outside a McDonald's or a Taco Bell in order to pick up the Wi-Fi connection. They're, you know, this is exacerbating disadvantages for many of our disadvantaged students. I'm hearing from plenty of students about the challenges that they're experiencing with mental health. I've done more mental health referrals for students this semester than I have, you know, maybe in the 30 years that I've been teaching before now put together. And I, if I can just put in a plug for something amazing that VCU has done this semester, it used to be that after hours, mental health crisis calls went to VCU police services. And with all of the controversy now about the role that police forces and police services play on campus and in our communities, they very quickly switched that over to 24-hour civilian mental health counselor, crisis counselors now instead of police services. So, you know, real-time adjustment to student needs. So obviously there, there, there are plenty of needs that aren't being met for disadvantaged students. And, and it's harder in an online environment for us to try to find and catch those students who are falling through the cracks. But for a much broader array of students, I'm hearing so many stories that go something like this. You know, Professor Twig, I was one of those students who would never say much in discussions when we were in an in-class format because I feel like I didn't want to interrupt what someone else was saying or I was afraid that what I was saying was going to be incompletely formed or just repeating something someone else had said. But now I can raise my hand in the chat function or I have more time to compose my thoughts and then type it into the chat function. I feel like I get to know my classmates better because I can see their dogs or their cats or their children on the screen. You know, we develop a personal rapport more easily. And so what I'm finding is that the degree of participation, the uh, engagement of students in many ways has actually increased through the online format rather than decrease. So I, I don't think we should make automatic assumptions that the online modes of instruction are somehow inferior to what we've had before. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've lectured at Tulane several times since the pandemic, and I've found, you know, captive audiences of, you know, 50 on Zoom. I've found captive audiences of 25 on Zoom. And students really eager to learn. You know, I really take your point, though, that the internet provides some real disadvantages to people. And, you know, perhaps universities are going to need to adjust in their financial aid packages going forward, trying to figure out how they can better provide broadband um, to everybody. You know, that that's going to be a problem that people need to figure out. But the actual function of teaching online, it's really kind of dependent on how good the instructor is in this medium. And, you know, some professors are really, really good at it. Some professors are, you know, superb at it where they've been doing it for years, actually, with, you know, their massive online courses and they've been producing things that are just incredible. And these, you know, I think people are, are now becoming hip to finding out that there's these incredible resources out there for free that you don't have to pay, you know, $20,000, $50,000 a year to go to school to educate yourself with. 
and that people in developing countries all over the world with even a little bit of broadband have been tapping into to take, for instance, intro to computer science at Harvard for free. This is a, a revolution that we're just seeing the beginning of at a massive level. Judy, I wanted to come back to like what's missing today. I mean, the I understand the argument that we're going to experiment and learn a lot about how to make use of these tools, these digital and online tools to teach in a different way. But I also think that, you know, students need to win back their sense of community and their sense of direct what they're learning among themselves, just half of what they learn when they're in college and what they're learning from a face-to-face and in-person context. And that trying to preserve a kind of safe an innovative compromise of circumstances, these hybrids that we're seeing, seems to be the kind of middle ground in a lot of places. We've had some institutions like UNC Chapel Hill that panicked, went back to totally online. Wisconsin sort of held the ground as trying to preserve a hybrid. Smaller schools have been very successful. Emerson in Boston, I was talking to a professor there this weekend who's a friend, and I was impressed with how diligent they have been and cultivating a culture of, among the students of protecting their community, of accepting science, not challenging science, you know, a sense of purpose that allows them to get back what they've lost. You know, this sense of we can't get there right now. We have to be safe and we have to be innovative and careful. But if we really believe in the power of our community and then get it back to the leadership questions that I do agree that leadership is terribly important and highly variable, but the people who seem to have been the most successful are the ones who are very compassionate and they're listening to the students and they're, they're understanding the anxiety and the costs that, that the students are paying in their learning experience, but they're also giving them some vision of how to get back and they're also being really tough for those who are just dismissing what the basic rules of the road are. I mean... Rebecca Blank at UW is investigating 300 students. She's dismissed 12 already. I mean, when, for, when there are 1,400, and there's been outrageous, outrageous and flagrant defiance of the interests of the community that requires a tough set of measures, combined with a kind of humanistic and compassionate listening and engagement and telling people, we're here to serve you as students in a safe and effective way. We're here to get the best learning experience, and we're going to get to that. What do you say to that? I I couldn't agree more. We have a brand new dean in our College of Humanities and Sciences, where my political science department is situated. She's been here for three months now, and she sent an email to all college faculty and staff earlier this week that was extraordinary. It talked about those very issues you just outlined, Steve. It talked about compassion and flexibility and acknowledging the diverse array of circumstances that our students and our faculty and staff find themselves in and the challenges we're facing. And she encouraged us all to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and and encouraged our department chairs and supervisors to be flexible in accommodating our need to do that. And she demanded, she insisted that we extend that same level of flexibility and compassion to our students while being rigorous in the teaching and learning enterprise without sacrificing the extent to which we are 
offering the opportunity for learning and, and creating incentives and expectations around learning, she's very much recognizing the, the challenges, the, the diverse array of challenges that people are facing. I, I'd never seen a, a message like it in my academic career. It was, it really says something. I also think flexibility is key, right? So far, we've talked about institutions that have taken a singular approach to things. One of the things that we've done well at VCU, I think, is give faculty the options about what instruction modalities they want to choose. And so no one has boxed us in in any particular way. So in, in my department this semester, we have some faculty who are doing all in-class teaching as if everything were normal. And what's lucky is that all of the big, you know, 100, 200 seat courses have been by definition moved into online formats, which means all those big lecture halls are opened up now to classes that maybe have 25 or 30 students enrolled. So there's plenty of space for social distancing for instructors who want to take that approach. Then there are all kinds of different modalities where you know you might have a class that is partly online and partly in class and you rotate which students are in the seats in the classroom in any given day of the week in order to be able to preserve the social distancing that you need. And then all kinds of synchronous and asynchronous online modalities. So my husband, for example, who's also on the faculty in my department, is teaching both of his classes in a hybrid format this semester where he goes in and teaches the classes in person and students are welcome to come in and watch the class happen in real time. He also records the classes on Zoom as they're happening so students can tune in on Zoom in real time so that they can raise their hand, ask questions, participate in discussions online along with the students in the classroom as the class is happening. But then he's hit the record button so students can watch everything later if that's their preference. And what he's finding consistently is about a third of students taking advantage of each of those modalities. So about a third of the bodies are in the classroom, about a third are watching online. And he says about a third he's had minimal to no contact with other than, you know, a periodic check-in. And he's able to keep count of how many people are watching the recordings and not as many as he'd like so far. So he's worried that they're applying sort of the Netflix format, that they're planning to just binge all of the class sessions, you know, in the day or two uh, leading up to the midterm exam. But, but clearly what he's hearing from the students is a great appreciation for that degree of flexibility where they can choose from the menu. And it's not hard to do that. Right. You know, if, if you're going to go in and teach a class, you just push a couple of buttons and upload a file later. And, and it's pretty easy to accommodate everybody's needs. So we've done some student surveys in our department. We did one at the end of August and then one at the end of September and found that by and large, our students feel comfortable with the options that have been presented to them. And most importantly, they feel comfortable with the degree of learning that they're able to achieve through all this. And, and Steve, you mentioned a, a while ago uh, in this conversation about the extent to which, you know, as a faculty member, I'm focused on the classroom experience or the, the learning experience, the academic experience narrowly defined. And obviously that's, that's a big part, but it's far from the totality of why students go to college. And what we're hearing from the students who are choosing the in-class instructional formats is that that in-class experience where even though it's six feet away across a large lecture hall with wearing masks, that kind of social connection 
in person with their peers is extremely important to a lot of students. So we're lucky that we're one of the institutions that's been able to continue to provide that. Well, you know, Judy, your husband's model is so great because it actually would eliminate the reoccurring nightmare that I've had throughout my life of like going to three of my classes and doing great in three of them, but then like missing the entire fourth class and then at the end of the semester being like, oh, my God, I, I missed yeah. all these classes. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, before COVID struck, the American system of colleges and universities was pretty fragile, particularly smaller private institutions. And now economic stress is brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic has undermined some very promising small colleges already. Do you think if we have to live with this through through another couple of cycles, and let's hope we don't. But if we do need to, are you anticipating a continued decline in enrollment? Enrollments are down 15 or 20% across the country. Of the 7 million college students, it's down by 15 or 20%. As I said, there's been the closure of a couple of very promising small colleges that people were mourning the loss of them already. What's your sense of what the, the pathways may look like for colleges and universities? So as you said, Steve, this, I think, is continuing some processes that were already well underway even before COVID struck, where we were starting to see that model of you know, the small, often small town or rural private college starting to have some serious financial trouble and, and some beloved institutions having been barely saved by aggressive last minute campaigning um, of alumni or, or having gone underwater altogether. The enrollment numbers are interesting. Um, at VCU, what we're seeing is pretty steady enrollments among our upperclassmen and just a couple percentage points dip in our first year enrollments. Not nearly as bad as we were anticipating and and not nearly as bad as as our administrators were being led to plan for when they were you know having to plan for different scenarios of budget cuts. Um, I pulled out some national numbers. Overall, total enrollments are only down by two and a half percent nationwide. Two and a half percent. That's overall. So undergraduates are down a little more than that. International enrollments are down by eleven percent. So that, that's the big hit, right, is the institutions that relied a lot on those international student populations. Think about, you know, Arizona, a couple of the other big institutions that put so many of their eggs in that basket. They're really hurting now. Community colleges are down by seven and a half percent. And that's extraordinary, right? These, these are many institutions that were operating on a shoestring to begin with serving some of our most important vulnerable populations, um, you know, training in some of our most important trades and unexpected, maybe usually in times of economic downturn, you see enrollments at community colleges go up rather than down because because people want to learn these trades and get jobs. I think this is a mark here of the way COVID has disproportionately hit disadvantaged populations. So you have students who they may not be sick themselves, but they're responsible for taking care of families where someone has become ill or pitching in financially in families where people have lost jobs. And, you know, these are the ethnic minority families. You know, the, these are the children of the workers in the meatpacking plants and, and in the personal care industry. They're the ones who just haven't been able to continue to afford progressing through their community college education. It's, it, it's a tragedy. Enrollments are up a little bit. And financial aid is drying up too because schools are facing budget crises because of this. 
Absolutely. And and the big question mark for the public institutions is what's going to happen with state budgets. In Virginia, for example, we're not going to have those numbers out of the General Assembly for another month or two. And so we're kind of hovering in, in an uncertain area, wondering what at VCU, uh, you know, in Virginia's community colleges, what our level of state budget support will be. And, and that's true, you know, at public institutions around the country, depending on what the legislative cycle calendar looks like. Judy, we're getting towards the close here. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. What worries you the most? What are you, what are you most worried about? I worry about our ability to track and support our most vulnerable students. And when I say vulnerable, I'm thinking of our non-white students, our students of color. I'm thinking of students from low-income families. I'm thinking of students from families that may have been stable pre-COVID, but who have encountered obstacles because of the pandemic. And the the number one issue that I'm seeing at a level that's an order of magnitude above where it was before is the mental health challenges that students and their families are facing. So is that manifest mostly in anxiety disorders, depression, anxiety disorders, depression? It manifests in students inability to meet deadlines and calendars of activities for a course inability to keep going to the jobs that may have been supporting them through their educations. And so I find myself sending a lot of emails and contacting VCU's counseling services a lot, really trying to get the message through to students that they should ask for help, that, you know, that their mental health is just as important as their physical health and that there are resources available to them, you know, trying to break through that stigma and and get students to understand that they are deserving of help here and should reach out for it. What gives you the most hope? The extraordinary energy and dedication with which our faculty and staff and leadership, not just at VCU, but at universities around the country have have come together to try to support our students and each other during this crisis. And maybe most satisfyingly, the way our students are coming together to support one another, both inside and outside the classroom. But the number of student initiatives with peer support through food banks, through peer-to-peer counseling networks, tutoring services, all kinds of ways that students are stepping up, uh, in most of them using online platforms. It's been extraordinary. Judy, this has been an incredible, incredible conversation. We've learned a lot. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to share some of these experiences. Thank you, Judy. 